Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said. Amen. Last Sunday we placed the Pharisees in, in some context, recognizing that there were both good and bad Pharisees. On the whole, they were conservative evangelical Bible believers. In other words, on the whole, they were a lot like us. This means that the warnings Jesus gives regarding the particular temptations and sins of the Pharisees frequently will apply to us as well. We should be on the lookout for them, look out for these tendencies in ourselves, and we should be wise also to heed the warnings of Jesus. The Pharisees appear on the historic scene as men who thought that they had figured out a way to make the Old Covenant work for them, which, of course, would mean the New Covenant was not necessary, wasn't needed. As the official interpreters of the Mosaic Law, they had adapted God's standard to become something that was not impossible for them to perform, Though it was difficult and meticulous in some ways, the standard was high enough to weed out the undesirables, or as Hillary would call them, the deplorables, but not so difficult as to become overly burdensome for themselves. This is a critical process and one that most of us are pretty good at. Think of the guy who has learned how to resolve the Rubik's Cube. He loves to show you that, right? Because he knows you can't do it. He hands it to you, and you can't do it. What he doesn't realize is when he hands it to me, I don't really care. <laughs> and that's the way it is with the Pharisees oftentimes. They have all these things that have to be done, and, and they've figured it out, and they've got it all worked out, and then they look to you to do it, and you go, eh, so what? Well, he can show everyone else how smart and skilled he is. Most others can't do it, and most others don't care. With this new standard, the Pharisees can judge themselves to be righteous and also judge those who, in their estimation, fall short. You know, they knew all kinds of things about the Bible. They could quote things. They could find things. They could always put somebody else on the spot. So this opens the door to all kinds of arrogance and false humility and judgment and self-righteousness. 
And this is very dangerous because it disguises itself as a form of enlightenment. This is what Jesus meant when he said, I believe, in Matthew 6.23, If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So the darkness is great because you think the darkness is light. Thus Jesus called the Pharisees blind leaders of the blind. Now in the New Testament, we constantly see Jesus reaching out and reaching down towards sinners and towards societies marginalized. That's your inclination too, right? But even, I want a word of caution here. So somebody thinks, yeah, I'm one of those lowly people. But you see, even the lowly can become Pharisees and become proud of their lowliness. So don't be too fast on the draw. It reminds me of the story of the fellow that had been working for a company for 25 years. They had a big banquet, large company, and they called out an award, a pin they were going to award. And his name was called for the most humble employee. So he meekly went forward, received the pin, everybody applauded, and he left. Well, the following year, he wore the pin, and they took it away from him. So we have to be careful when we just about the time we think we've got it or we're, we're the guy, the good guy in the story, the story switches and we find ourselves uh, in a new situation. So the two men in this parable represented the two extremes in Judaism. The one stood at the pinnacle of holiness and the other was a wicked outcast. Tax collectors were sorry, no good people. And if you saw the two coming into church today, which one would you be drawn to and which one would you be repelled by? Well, Jesus knows which one you'd be drawn to and repelled by, and that's why he chose these two characters. Note, isn't it odd that on the one hand, we do want to be like other people in certain ways. We covet certain things they have. Those of you familiar with the poem, Richard Corey might draw that into your memory. You know, there's certain people look at, oh, I wish I could be like him, or at least wish I could have his car, or something. Something about him I want. But on the other hand, we are also glad that we're not like other people. You know, the people at Walmart that you sit in judgment of. I do, while I'm at Walmart. Well, there, there are few simple pleasures in life that exceed the pleasure of passing judgment on another person. In fact, for most of us, it would be hard to go through one day without indulging ourselves in this pleasure. We hold court on a regular basis. For some of us, court is always in session. We've, uh, we're gathering evidence and information all the time on others so that we can pass judgment on them. If not with our actual words, then in our minds there is a perpetual judicial proceeding. We can judge or think we can judge by the way people look or talk or dress. John Fisher in his book, Twelve Steps for the Recovering Pharisee wrote this description, and I liked it, and I thought this really captures, I think, something we, most of us can identify with. He said, 
In a small part of an average day, I might condemn my daughter numerous times for a messy room, my son for laziness, my wife for working too hard and raising my standard, even my dog for his bad odor. Of course, I am responsible for his bad odor, but because I haven't given him a bath, he's just a dog. I pick up the newspaper in the morning after condemning the paper boy for throwing it so that half the front page is torn and find it full of people I can judge as being sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, and childish, lumping large groups of people together and at once dispatching the whole lot of them as especially effective. The world always seems to be cooperating with my assessment of it as long as I remain distant from a personal knowledge of any of these individuals. I get in my car, and I start driving and finding a host of inept vehicle operators who all should have failed their driving test. <clears throat> I arrive miraculously unscathed at my bank and find myself in line behind another group of people who obviously can't add or subtract or they wouldn't take so long at the counter. At the market, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that renders it impossible to find what I'm looking for about the, about the inane music coming from the speakers, about the new labeling process that makes it difficult to price individual items, about the ads that interrupt the music telling me about the specials of the day up the, that were up the aisles that I've already passed, and about the teenage checker who is just a little too loopy and bouncy for my current mood. Paper or plastic? She smiles, working a too large wad of gum around her too small open mouth. Ever notice how everything that's wrong with the world is always someone else's fault? We like it this way. Our eyes look out. They don't look in. And if they are looking for what's wrong, they'll always find much upon which to focus. Only inner eyes can look in, and inner eyes do not come naturally. Inner eyes are weak at best and rarely exercise. It is our outlook that predominates. An outlook that takes great pleasure in scrutinizing the minutest details of someone else's compromise while overlooking large chunks of our own self-contradiction with nary a blink. And so with the smallest bit of information, we can draw sweeping conclusions about others. Other people's sins seem way more egregious than my own. Moreover, I think they ought to just make up their mind to stop sinning. Why don't they just stop? Just quit. But now my sins are a different matter. My sins aren't that bad. We, like the Pharisees, become critics of all those around us. And though we might give a hat tip to our own sinfulness, our own failings, well, yeah, I'm a sinner too. We nevertheless truly think that we are superior to most of those who are around us. So as we think about this a bit today, could we have your permission to expose your own thoughts, motivations, and behavior for all to see? I didn't think so. How many others have you judged this week for being sinful, stupid, arrogant, childish, fat, ugly, or ignorant? Maybe you could add to that list. How many, pe- how many groups of people have you lumped together so that you can dismiss, dismiss all of them? A class of people. Age, 
race, politics, those people. Men, women, children. Charles Spurgeon said, any fly can find a sore, and most of us have no trouble finding the faults of others. By the way, I ran across this. never thought I'd be quoting him in a sermon. But a note that was found in the Bible of Elvis Presley said, I assume he heard it in a sermon and wrote it down, to judge a man by his weakest link or deed is like judging the power of the ocean by one wave. But we do that. Now this really goes back to the Garden of Eden and our desire to be our own God, to determine good and evil for ourselves and for everybody else on our terms. We want to be the authority that sets the standards, and so we hold court in our own mind where no one can challenge us. We can be the judge, the jury, the executioner, exonerating ourselves while we convict others. By judging others, we hope to justify ourselves. Look at that guy. I'm not so bad. As a result, we cut them off, we write them off, and we gossip about them. The real motive for this is a means of justifying ourselves, at least by comparison. And that's what the Pharisee is doing in Luke chapter 18. We can always find people worse than us, people who are beneath us. And if I bump into someone who appears to be above me, guess what I do? I can usually find something wrong with them, too. I can manufacture some imagined flaw that allows me to rise in my own estimation. I am capable of doing this with anyone at any time and thereby establishing my own righteousness. Again, we know enough of the Bible that we might not be so bold as the Pharisee is in this parable, so we don't outright say, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And we know enough to say something like, well, I have my faults too, which is another way of saying, I'm not a Pharisee, which is another way of saying, I'm not like him. So, I think this is why some people are secretly glad when spiritual leaders fail or fall. When someone prominent stumbles, it hasn't made us any better, but it sure makes us feel better. Notice in our text, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. So there's a real question about whether he was praying to God at all. In the parable, we get to hear the genuine thoughts of his heart. In this prayer, we get to see what a case of full-grown self and works righteousness looks like. I thank you that I am not like other men. I am different. I am better. And then he enumerates several ways in which he's better. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I, of all I possess. Again, we might not be as crass as the Pharisee in this parable. We might not say these words in this prayer, but we do say them in the attitudes of our hearts. The other person's list of sins might be a little different than the ones here. And the list of our accomplishments might be different. But our hearts are exactly the same. In both cases, 
We establish an attainable standard of righteousness that becomes the measure used to establish our righteousness and to judge others. Now we tend to think of the Pharisees as having really high standards. And we tend to think of ourselves the same way. But it turns out that that's not really the case. Though in some cases we simply have a double standard. A high standard for others and a low standard for ourselves. In this case, we don't have to explain our standards to anyone. In fact, we get to adjust our standards according to what suits us at any given moment. We can raise or lower the bar at will. Our goal is not to help or make anyone better. It's hidden. But the real goal is to establish our superiority over others. We're God, and we get to decide who passes and who doesn't. But it turns out to be a fool's paradise. <coughs> Jesus warns in Matthew twenty-three thirteen, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You see, if the Pharisee submits himself to God's standards, the true standards, that is, if they enter the kingdom of heaven then they lose control. Then they would be the recipients of God's free grace and God's righteousness. Then they would have to be full of grace toward others, and they would have to be full of gratitude. Moreover, they would have to relinquish the relished role of being the judge of others. You see, the kingdom of God is made up completely of sinners who have received nothing but pure, free grace and mercy from God, none of which deserves to be there. Anyone who has truly experienced the free grace and mercy cannot evaluate others through any other lens or standards. So it gets back to one of those age-old fundamental questions. I preached a series of sermons titled, Who's in Charge? Well, that's been the question, question from the beginning. Like the Pharisees, we want to control the rules of the game. We think, uh, we think this will work to our advantage. As any child knows, if he makes up a game and can make the rules, or if he starts a club. Anybody ever, ever have a club? And you very quickly decide who can be in the club and who can't be in the club. And you get to make the rules. We set a standard that some, but not all, are capable of achieving, and we try to have some kind of acceptable authority behind it. Well, the Pharisees had their interpretation of the Mosaic Law. We have our interpretation of the Bible as well. The problem is we tend to interpret selectively or reinterpret it to suit us or to reduce it to a list of do's and don'ts that some people can do and others simply don't care and they don't care for good reason. For the Pharisees, this included things like, as our text says, washing hands before eating, meticulously observing the Sabbath, fasting twice a week. So, for example, in the law, the law only required one fast per year on the Day of Atonement. He says, I fast twice a week. He was fasting a hundred times more than the law required. Tithing on everything, mint, anise, cumin. He got out his spice rack and he weighed all the little spices and he took a tenth of each of them and put them in a little Ziploc bag, I guess. Took them to the temple. 
praying in public. Each of these was performed for everyone to see. Jesus said, but all their works they do to be seen by men. You don't ever do that, do you? While this is going on, other things are being neglected. Jesus also observed in Mark 7, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. And and Jesus also warned, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay the tithe on the mint and the anise and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So let's think a moment about the Sermon on the Mount. Many things occur in that great sermon, but Jesus exposes the problem that we're talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Six times he says, you have heard it said, and six times he continues, but I tell you. In each case, Jesus took the Pharisees' more superficial understanding of the law, and he expanded it to include its essence. The Pharisees' version was doable. Jesus' version was not. Do not murder becomes do not be angry with anyone. Do not commit adultery becomes do not look upon a woman lustfully. An eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth becomes do not resist an evil person but return good for evil. And when Jesus was finished, no one could see himself as righteous. So Jesus is very good at getting to the heart of the matter for the Pharisees and also for us. For the Pharisees and for us, our goal is to make the standards for righteousness just easy enough for me to follow, but too difficult or irrelevant for most others to follow. This will allow me to look pretty good while leaving me plenty of room to judge others. Every time we pass judgment on someone else, no matter what it is, Perhaps we should say these words. Imagine, I don't know how many times you passed judgment this past week, but imagine at the end of each judgment, each sentence, each word of judgment, you said, and I thank God that I'm not like that. We like mercy for ourselves and we like justice for everyone else, but we can't have it both ways. The second we pass judgment on anyone, we're in trouble. In judging someone else, I have announced that this is the standard upon which I want everyone to be evaluated, including myself. Matthew 7, 1 and 2, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. If there is justice for all, then there is condemnation for all. And if there is a cross and an empty tomb for all, then there is mercy for all. Now, a little shift of gears here as we wrap this up this morning. I want to think about this passage a little bit differently, and I want to give the Pharisee in this story the benefit of the doubt. That's what we do for ourselves, right? In many ways, if what we have reported here is true, in many ways he was a good man. He was a praying man. He was not a thief. 
He treated people fairly. He was not a womanizer. He was faithful to his wife. Unlike the tax collector, he didn't extort people. And on top of all this, he fasted and tithed. He was not only good, he was religious. Sounds like a man I'd love to have as a church member. The tax collector, on the other hand, was not at all like that. Robert Capon, in his usually adept way, described him as such. The Pharisee is not at all like this publican or tax collector, this tax collector who is the worst kind of crook, a legal one, a big operator, a mafia-style enforcer working for the Roman government on a a nifty franchise that lets him collect from his fellow Jews, mind you, from the people whom the Romans might have trouble finding, but whose whereabouts he knows and whose language he speaks, all the money he can bleed out of them, provided only that he pays the authorities an agreed flat fee. He has been living for years on the cream he has skimmed off their milk money, He is a fat cat who drives a stretch limo, drinks nothing but Shabazz Regal, and never shows up at a party without at least two $500 a night call girls in tow. Now, through this parable, Jesus is telling us something about this good man. He tells us he's not only in his bad shape, he's not only in bad shape, but that he's actually in worse condition than the tax collector who is rotten to the core. Jesus uses these two extreme examples to demonstrate that this good man cannot do anything to justify himself. He's no better off than the tax collector, and in fact, in one critical sense, he is worse off. Because while they're both still sinners, at least the tax collector realizes that he has nothing to offer and is totally at the mercy of God. C.S. Lewis said, quote, Prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avarice, the avaricious, and the self-righteous are in that danger. The point is that they're both dead and they both need someone who can raise the dead. When God looks at you or me or the Pharisee or the tax collector, there is not a dime's worth of difference in any of us. We're all equally dead and in need of resurrection. And Capon remarks, the trouble with the Pharisee is that for as long as he refuses to confess the first, the first fact, which is death, he will simply be unable to believe the second, resurrection. It's just misery, he says, to keep count of what God is no longer counting. Your entries into the ledger just keep on disappearing. So now I wonder... In this parable, let's just imagine what might have happened next week, the week after these two prayers were prayed at the temple. Do you suppose the tax collector completely reformed himself? 
cleaned up his act, came back to the temple with a different approach next week. So again, Capen asked a good question. What, why, I love this, why are you so bent on destroying the story by sending the tax collector back to his second visit with the Pharisee's speech in his pocket? So the tax collector is going to come back next week and say, I thank you that I am not like these other men now. I've changed. He says, the honest answer is that while you understand the thrust of the parable with your mind, your heart has a desperate need to believe its exact opposite. And so does mine. We all long to establish our identity by seeing ourselves as approved in other people's eyes. We spend our days preening ourselves before the mirror of their opinion so we will not have to think about the nightmare of appearing before them naked and uncombed. And we hate this parable because it says plainly that it is the nightmare that is the truth of our condition. We fear the publican's acceptance because we know precisely what it means. It means that we will never be free until we are dead to the whole business of justifying ourselves. But since that is the business of our life, that means not until we are dead. For Jesus came to raise the dead, not to reform the reformable, not to improve the improvable. And our narthex is a copy of Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. Not only do we see displayed in that great piece of art the father's mercy being bestowed upon the bowing prodigal. Not only do we see the humble prodigal on his knees, in his rags, begging just to be one of the father's servants. That's beautiful all by itself. But there are three other characters in that painting. We also see the older brother and Rembrandt wisely painted him up on a raised platform, up on his perch, looking with disgust upon that scene of the prodigal and the father. The self-righteous brother who is put out by this scene. And in the background, kind of hidden, kind of peering behind a wall, two servants looking at the whole scene with astonishment. Where do you see yourself in that painting? Jesus said in Luke 6, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Press down, shaken together. Running over, it will be put into your bosom, for with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, as always, you put your finger on it. You put your finger on us. You know us. You know our hearts. You know how often we sit in judgment of others while excusing or commending ourselves. We love to inspect, but we hate to be inspected. We look down instead of looking up. We look out instead of looking in. Help us to see ourselves as we really are, which is dead, so that we might be given life and resurrection. Help us also to look at others with mercy and with grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look again, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This morning, before we come to the table, I just want to read four short quotes on this topic that we've covered today. Um, They're they're very short, but maybe some thoughts that will help, help bring us to the table. John Wesley said, we should be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others. Now, you can start that at your house. That's the hardest place to implement this, but if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. John Owen, the great Puritan, wrote, uh, Mortification or death from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion. The spirit alone is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without him are useless. He is the great efficient. He is the one who gives life and strength to our efforts. J.C. Ryle said, Beware of self-righteousness in every possible shape and form. Some people get as much harm from their so-called virtues as others do from their sins. And then finally, Blaise Pascal, God is none other than the Savior of our wretchedness. So we can only know God well by knowing our iniquities. Those who have known God without knowing their wretchedness have not glorified Him, but have glorified themselves. Our great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. You are the faithful one. And today we bless your holy name and lift it high with praise and adoration for you in your mercy condescended to us. You sent your son. God became a man that we might have a mediator, that we might be saved from our sins and that we might have peace with you. Indeed, you have remembered your covenant and we bow with grateful hearts. Send us forth, O Lord, with your blessing and with your strength. Help us to remember your covenant as well, that we might dwell forever in the house of the Lord. So we have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory, because your loving kindness is better than life, 
our lips shall praise you. Thus we will bless you while we live. We will lift up our hands in your name. Our souls shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and our mouths shall praise you with joyful lips. Bless now this Lord's Day for your glory and for our good. Bless our feasting and our resting and our rejoicing. In Jesus' name, amen. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Amen.